So it's a bit shocking to us, but probably at some point, almost every plant, animal, and mineral was ingested at one point as a medicine. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Today, we're going to dive into science and medicine in the Middle Ages. How were doctors trained? What were they trained on? What so-called remedies actually worked? Today, we have historian Winston E. Black with us, author of Medicine and Healing in the Pre-Modern West, a history in documents to walk us through all things science and medicine. Thank you for joining us, Winston. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what you do and how did you get into this? Yeah, of course. Uh, I am a historian of medieval medicine and religion. My official position is uh, I'm the Gatto Chair of Christian Studies at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. So I teach courses on medieval history, medieval religion, and my favorite topic, uh, medieval medicine for the history and religious studies departments there. It's a field I've been working on now for about 20 years uh, since grad school. And really what interests me most is what was medicine like within medieval Christian society? What, what did it mean to heal the body in a society that thought so much about their eternal souls? That's such a great segue into our first question from our from our listeners, because you mentioned, you know, the Christian religion, or um, I wouldn't want to call it necessarily superstition. But when we're looking at science and medicine, how much of the medieval medicine was actually based in fact and science versus, again, for lack of a better word, superstition? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And it's it's something that modern audiences always want to know about. We, we tend to always create this overly simplified dichotomy between either is it science or is it superstition? And in the Middle Ages, really all the way up until, say, the 19th century, most medicine was not scientific. They're not testing it in the laboratory, but it is for the most part uh, based on natural materials. It's based on observation and tried and true methods of what people thought worked. So I, I really don't like that term superstition. Um, almost all of their medicine was using natural remedies, 
usually plants. And by our standards, yeah, maybe some of it worked. Uh, but yeah, I guess what's lacking for us today is, yeah, they don't have the laboratories. They don't have the chemical analysis or synthesis where people blame the Middle Ages, I guess, for superstition is that indeed uh, medieval people did use prayers to God or the saints along with their herbal remedies. They did use magical spells occasionally. Uh, so there are elements that we, of course, wouldn't consider scientific or natural at all, but it's not one or the other. They're using a whole package of healing systems that made sense in their world. So if one was going to go into the field of medicine at the time, how were these physicians educated since they didn't have, like you said, the analyses, the laboratories, they had the herbs? Did they just stay at home and, and put things together and mix up tinctures? and Or how did they come up with things? And if they weren't coming up with them themselves, who did they learn from? Yeah, sure. Um I'm going to talk here mostly about the later medieval period, say after the 12th and 13th centuries, when we know a lot more. There were professional physicians uh, after the 13th century or so. It starts looking a little more like modern medicine. You've got universities. They establish professional medical faculties. And you could get a degree in medicine at a few uh, universities in Europe. And so the professional physician would yeah go to university, study books, hear lectures, and claim a body of knowledge that other people didn't have. Big difference from today, though, is there's really no medical licensing. Anybody could be a healer. Uh, so you have men and women, literate and illiterate people who either simply made things up or to be, I guess, more fair to them, they probably learned from their parents or a master in healing uh, how to prepare a set of remedies uh, that they believe were tried and true. I mean, today we're so obsessed with new discoveries. New is always better. But the medieval attitude was usually um, what ancient authority does this uh, remedy come from. So it's always better if you can trace it back to uh, usually the ancient Greeks, to Hippocrates or Galen, Dioscorides. These are the real authorities for medicine throughout the Middle Ages. So their remedies would either simply just be passed down in a family or a workshop, or if you're literate, you get them from a, uh, a tried and true set of books that they really read throughout the entire Middle Ages. Were there were there specialists at the time? I mean, you know, thinking about, for example, now we have a doctor that specializes in in you know heart issues, or a general practitioner, or a dentist, or you know, all those different specialties that they can go into. Did people who practice medicine at the time just kind of practice a general form of medicine, or or be a physician of all things, or did did people go to different types of doctors for different things? You do find a little diversification, but not nearly as much as today. Your trained physician really is yeah, a, a jack of all trades. Their main expertise is they claim that they understood the inside of your body, and they were the ones who could prepare uh, potions and tinctures and infusions that would balance your humors. Uh, now, there are some 
surgical specialists. There would be um, pretty much uh, craftsmen and women who specialized in one procedure, uh, just cataract surgery for eyes or bladder stone or hernia. So there were some specializations in that respect, but usually if you go to a local healer or a professional physician, you can expect that they should be able to handle anything um, going wrong inside your body. You mentioned men and women. Is that That's actually surprising to hear. Were there many women doctors? Well, we want to be careful about terminology here. There probably are plenty of women healers, but to claim you're a doctor or their preferred word in the Middle Ages, physician, almost always had to be a man because only men could go to university. But it seems in almost every community, there would be um, women healers and herbalists, uh, could even be called a wise woman, uh, the sort of people who might be later on accused of witchcraft, sadly. We know about so few of these women. um, We only hear about them, unfortunately, from condemnations. But it happens enough where the the university-educated men in the city will uh, say, oh, these old women in the towns and villages who are trying to practice our medicine. So they're there, uh, but we uh, don't hear their voices very often. Thank you for clarifying that. I, I thought that that would be the case, but um, I heard you say more men and women. So I was like, yeah. let's, let's talk about that. So now let's talk about maybe where they practiced. I know that you said that there weren't laboratories and things like that. But as far as where they did the actual practicing of the healing, did a doctor or a physician typically come to you? Or was there something similar to what we would know as a hospital? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's a a lot of range of answers here. Um, A lot of it depends on your wealth. Um, how much money uh, are you willing and able to spend on healing? So um, wealthier people uh, could have a doctor come to them. Uh, The doctor generally wouldn't have an office as we understand it today. And so um, home visits are not just medieval. It was well into the 20th century that this was still the norm. But you do find some physicians at uh, medieval hospitals um, their hospitals aren't quite the same as ours. You can't expect them to be a full-fledged medical institution staffed with medical professionals. Their hospitals were more like nursing homes with a religious goal. Almost all their hospitals were uh, founded by churches or even were part of churches and monasteries. That was a good place, though, if you were uh, poor, a visitor, or a pilgrim, Uh, in a community that's not your own, uh, you could find one of these religious hospitals. You might not get a professionally trained doctor there, but you could get some basic uh, medical care. Now, probably what most people did is, say, in this, especially the larger towns and cities of the later Middle Ages, you have a problem or a family member has a problem, and you would go to a herbalist or an apothecary and simply say, do you have something for such and such problem? And they would sell it to you. And it's really, um, you're on your own then without necessarily a doctor being involved. That's, that sounds a little dangerous, yeah. but I understand the, the, the thought process. Let's circle back a little bit to 
a term you used earlier that I was uh, looking forward to talking about today, the humors. This is something that I, I know that our listeners have, have likely heard before, but maybe have not had explained in detail to them. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are the humors and how are they affected? Things like that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't understand medieval medicine without understanding the humors. Uh, so a humor is essentially a liquid in your body or a goo or a slime. It's the stuff that comes out of us. Um, and in the ancient and medieval period, they categorized these humors into four major types, uh, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. Uh, and those last two are also called uh, choler and melancholy. Melancholy just means black choler, black bile. This is not just a medieval idea. It goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Most of the credit for you call it humoralism or the humoral system uh, is given to Hippocrates, fifth uh, century BCE uh, Greek physician. Um, a real person, but kind of a shadowy figure. A lot of what we attribute to Hippocrates is probably a whole group of doctors over about a 200-year period. But what they had in common was that they rejected a lot of earlier ideas about disease that attributed disease and misfortune to gods or evil spirits or the ancestors and said, no, disease has a natural cause. So in that respect, they're almost modern. And so they're looking at the human body, trying to understand, okay, what can we see from the human body that can point to this natural cause? And so they, they look at a sick person, just as um, we see today, and you might be bleeding in a weird way, or especially any kind of cold, we create more phlegm. So they say, aha, the body is trying to tell us something. And so over a period of several hundred years in the Greek period and in the Roman period too, um, multiple generations of doctors really refined this humoral system where they could explain pretty much any disease as being caused by our internal humors being out of whack. Uh, they would especially describe it as an imbalance of the humors. So something's happening where you have too much phlegm or your blood is corrupted, or an excess of black bile. They've used that to explain the disease. And then once you know what humor is out of line, you can then try to decide what is the best uh, method of treatment, whether it's a dietary change or exercise, uh, surgery, or usually a uh, herbal remedy. And so this humoral system uh, really persists throughout the entire Middle Ages and it's not just medieval, all the way until the 18th or even 19th century in the modern era, you'll still find doctors who think in terms of, of the humors and keeping the body in balance. It's so interesting. Do you think that you could give us an example of kind of an illness and then the route to healing as it pertains to the humors? Very often, if a person is sick in some way, the doctors are not only observing, like I said, what, what's coming out of their body, but their um, uh, the complexion of their skin, their behavior, their overall physical appearance. Uh, so a person who is, uh, say, 
overly flushed, too red, maybe too warm uh, with a fever, uh, they could be uh, diagnosed with having an excess of essentially just too much blood. Uh, and it, again, it might sound shocking to us, but they decide essentially we need to get that excess blood out of the body. Now, one of the most popular methods was bloodletting. You, they would cut a vein, usually um, at the crook of your elbow, and take about a pint of blood. Uh, the idea is you're not only removing the blood, but with the blood comes a bunch of the excess or bad humors. Another example that they might use is um, uh, they're, they're looking for ways to essentially purge your body, to empty it of the excess or bad humors. So a popular uh, herbal remedy is a plant called scamony. Today, we essentially consider it mildly toxic and poisonous. But what they observed, rightly, is that a person who eats scamony might urinate blood. And for us, we say, ah, that's bad. <laughs> but in the medieval mindset, they would say, aha, the body is now purging some of that excess blood. So it's not, of course, scientific by our modern standards, but they're using observation, trial and error, and trying to interpret what they see. So, aha, scamony causes people to urinate blood. Therefore, we can use it to purge excess blood from the body and cure this person's disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It sounds like some of the remedies of the time were worse or may sometimes have been more uh, uncomfortable than the actual illness because it's like, oh, you know, you have a fever instead of, you know, sleeping it off or resting or whatever. It's like, well, let's cut you open and, and get some of that blood out. It sounds, uh, it sounds scary. You know, getting sick at that time was, was a lot, a lot different than if you, you know, had a cold or whatever it is these days. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, for the most part, there was a recognition. We don't want to imagine the doctors are using these really invasive procedures for everything. They had a real faith in the power of nature and the power of human body uh, to heal itself. One of the jobs of a good doctor is just to sort of nudge nature along, <laughs> maybe change their diet, um, introduce a herbal remedy. Uh, but we have to yeah, come down to the brutal reality that if someone is seriously sick, or especially if you have a serious injury that may get infected in the pre-modern period, you're in serious danger. Uh, that, that would be one of the biggest problems, uh, infection, that they simply did not have the tools to deal with that. They could recognize it. They knew infection, uh, but they didn't have any of the antiseptics or antibiotics we, of course, have uh, to deal with those problems. Well, then as far as antiseptics and antibiotics or cures on the whole, were there any that were discovered around that time that we still use today? Is there anything that we might recognize that we have today from, from back then? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, 
built into medieval medicine is an idea, especially the, the Christian medieval medicine, where you have faith in God to provide. And what they see in the world around them is that every single substance in the natural world is potentially a medicine. So it's a bit shocking to us, but probably at some point, almost every plant, animal, and mineral was ingested at one point as a medicine. (laughs) But through that trial and error over centuries, they really did realize uh, certain substances, especially plant substances, uh, have a real biological effect. And the most famous will be opium. Um, Throughout the ancient world and the Middle Ages, they knew the opium poppy, they knew how to process it, and they knew, just as we do today, that it is the most effective pain reliever and uh, sedative. They also recognize that it's very dangerous, that um, uh, used improperly or overdosing can, of course, lead to death. Uh, So um, opium was used uh, in serious cases, especially in surgeries, uh, but with caution. Uh, Some other substances that we know today are very uh, strong bioactive properties um, are uh, like uh, belladonna, uh, henbane. Uh, These are both members of the nightshade family related to tomatoes, but the poisonous ones. Um, And these are plants that have uh, in the modern era been synthesized um, and their alkaloids, their most powerful natural compounds have been extracted and used in anesthesia. Uh, So, yeah, medieval people, they knew what plants were most powerful in this respect. What they're lacking, of course, are the the safety controls, the the chemical synthesis and the ability to dose or measure properly. Let's talk a little bit about some of the common or, or even less common illnesses that people might face at the time that were kind of out of control or out of the realm of help for a physician. I know you had mentioned, obviously, infections and things like that, but I'm kind of thinking along the lines of like the Black Death and plague (laughs) and um, the different types of pox and those kinds of things. So what are the things that in your research you found that they they just couldn't control? And if you got this, that was it. Uh, well, plague is probably, yeah, the most famous example that uh, all the listeners will know about. Um, uh, occurred several times in the Middle Ages, uh, most infamously the Black Death of the 14th and 15th centuries. But that's the thing about medieval doctors. They are very confident. <laughs> when uh, the worst episode of plague, the Black Death of the 1340s came, initially, the doctors really did give up but only briefly. Uh, They saw this terrible epidemic disease that is killing an average of probably, we think now, 50% of all communities in Europe and beyond. But plague kept on coming back. And that's terrifying for us, of course, living through another uh, major pandemic now. But when plague came back in the 1360s, doctors by that point were more confident that they could actually treat it or more likely prevent it. So a lot of uh, recommendations involved um, how do you take care of your body 
and where do you live and what you eat and who do you associate with so that you don't get the plague. Um, and yeah, we, uh, similar attitude, uh, would occur with uh, other serious disease, like you mentioned, smallpox or uh, leprosy, Hansen's disease. In these most serious cases, they did admit that once you get it, there's not much a doctor can do. But the doctors are very good, they would claim anyway, at helping you not get it in the first place, help with prevention. There would be a few doctors who would claim that they could uh, cure plague. I mean, it's a pretty bold claim. It helps that plague, although it is a very, very deadly disease, a certain percentage of people do survive it no matter what. So it might look like uh, to surrounding people that the doctor had indeed succeeded if some of their patients did survive. Some of the points you're making, although they are slightly outdated at this time, um, seem natural and uh, seem a little obvious, a little too obvious, you know, talking about prevention and and um, caring for yourself in a natural way and those kinds of things. It, it almost seems like some of those, some of these, you know, archaic things that we're hearing about actually could help us a little bit in, in modern times, even though we're obviously happy to have the medicine that we have today, some of the kind of basics, like going back to the basics, sounds like it would be a good idea. Yes and no. I don't want to take it too far. I, 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 well, no, not too far. <laughs> I, I like to uh, obviously defend medieval medicine to a point, but I wouldn't want medieval medicine. I think what, what no <laughs> no no that was definitely not the point I was making. Yeah. Uh, just the I guess when you mentioned prevention yeah. and kind of um, not always looking to the cure, that sounds like a great idea actually. So you know that's but then but then when we get into the medicine, yes for sure. Yeah, and I think what we can um, admire and emulate and respect to some way is their attitude. Um, they recognize, just as we did, that certain diseases, especially plague, are highly contagious. And they recognized, even though they don't know about microscopic pathogens, they didn't know about bacteria or viruses, they could clearly see some diseases sweep through a community, go epidemic. And it's obviously related to proximity, sharing close spaces, breathing in the same space, and one of the main recommendations is in time of plague, flee, get out, <laughs> uh, leave that community. Um, and in many ways, they're correct. Um, yeah, where we have to be careful about the medieval medicine, though, is in the actual remedies that they then apply. Uh, but their ability to observe how diseases occur, how they spread, are are not that far off uh, what we now understand. Are there any physicians or doctors from you know the Middle Ages or around that time that that are noteworthy and that we reference today? Oh, I know that we talked about um, Hippocrates, but he was much earlier. Yeah. So is he kind of the one that sticks out, or do we have others? Yeah, I mean Hippocrates is probably the only one who uh, might remain a household name that you heard about outside of this subject. 
uh, for the most part, yeah, the medieval doctors, we know a lot of their names, but they uh, don't get the credit even when they might deserve it. Um, I, I did want to mention one um, uh, that I think d- deserves some credit for uh, advancing uh, surgical procedures. He was a 15th century doctor uh, in England named John of Ardern. And uh, he is a surgeon. He hasn't been to university, but he had extensive practice uh, treating a, a range of mostly uh, battle injuries. Uh, there's a lot of in- injuries for soldiers and knights in this period. But he gained fame and a lot of money in treating, and it seems successfully, a really gruesome condition that thankfully uh, doesn't happen too much uh, anymore. Uh, anal fistula. It's, uh, I don't want to go into too many details here, but it's a condition that mostly knights on horseback would get uh, that would affect their backside in a very bad way. <laughs> and so what Ardern... Oh, boy. Yeah. And uh, Ardern developed a, a series of surgical procedures and uh, topical ointments and... Um, care regimes, essentially, uh, that really seem to have worked. I mean, we mostly have to take his word for it, but it seems a lot of the noble English knights of the period swore by his methods. And um, so he's clearly doing, I I, I really want to avoid this kind of phrase, but yeah, he got it right uh, by our standards. Uh, So um, even though they're lacking... um, uh, our antibiotics and antiseptics again, some of the doctors and surgeons had developed really a good enough understanding of the human body and certainly certain parts of the human body that they could specialize in one procedure and really help people in many respects. It sounds so almost frustrating, I want to say, because the fact that they did understand the bodies and they did understand what they needed and just didn't necessarily have the the science yet behind getting these cures and and uh, the different you know the different medicines and the different ways of making the cures. And yet they knew kind of what was wrong and what they needed and things like that. It sounds like it probably was a frustrating job as as a physician. Possibly. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, what always strikes me is, again, like I said, the the confidence of these doctors, especially the, the ones who went to university, because they're obviously the ones who wrote the books uh, in many cases. Um, they really did feel that they were the heirs of an ancient tradition from Hippocrates, and then even more from the, the Greek Roman doctor Galen. I don't think I mentioned him earlier, but he's in some ways even more important than Hippocrates, where uh, they thought their system worked. Um, it, I think the frustration is more on our part. We can look back and see, oh my God, this staggering death rate. <laughs> uh, but they live in a world where they um, expect most sick people to die, um, especially most injured people. And that's not the doctor's fault if, if they die. They expected less of their medicine. So um, the doctor is there to provide care. And if they don't succeed, there's we're generally not going to find medical malpractice suits or 
condemnations of their medicine because that's just the way the world worked. Right, right. And there you there you have it again, another example of looking at things through a modern lens, right, where where back then it, it actually probably was, you know, exactly how you just said. That's it's what they expected and and they knew it was gonna happen. And and whereas now where we think, you know, you can't fix it, you have to get if you can't fix it, it is the doctor's fault. Yeah. Similar to what you uh what you just said. So thank you for that. Uh thank you for that perspective. So, and again, and thank you for everything today. There's been so much information um, that I really enjoyed talking to you. And I definitely want to give you the opportunity now to tell our listeners uh, a little bit about where they can find you or things that things that you've written. I mentioned earlier your, your book called Medicine and Healing in the Pre-Modern West, A History and Documents. But I know you've got something coming up in 2023, I don't know if you, I think you, you said this summer is when your, your next book is coming out. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure thing. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a, a volume of essays uh, coming out this summer. I've co-edited it with uh, Dr. Lucy Barnhouse of uh, Arkansas State University. That's called Beyond Cadfile, Medieval Medicine and Medical Medievalism. Um some of the listeners might uh, be familiar with Brother Cadfile, a uh, star of a series of murder mystery novels set in 12th century England, and then a uh, series of TV shows starring uh, Derek Jacobi as Brother Cadfile. Love the show, but part of what we're getting at here is, um, and we've talked a lot about this here, there's a lot of modern misconceptions and myths about what medieval medicine is. And if anyone knows anything, at least in the English-speaking world, uh, about medieval medicine, they might know it from Brother Cadfile. So in the essays in the volume, we look at how are people studying medieval medicine and um, what are some of the myths? And this is what is meant by medievalism, uh, sort of medieval-ish things in the modern day, <laughs> whether Tolkien, D&D, Game of Thrones, uh, and ways to sort of understand these uh, fruitfully, but also move beyond them. Um, another plug I might want to give is uh, for my first book. Uh, it's what really got me into uh, the subject of medieval medicine. It's uh, called Anglicanus Ortus, uh, Verse Herbal of the 12th Century. Uh, it's uh, an edition and translation of a herbal a uh, book of uh, medical remedies written in the 12th century uh, by an uh, English churchman named Henry of Huntingdon. And so um, that book's a little harder to get your hands on, but um, uh, another one of my publications that uh, listeners might want to know about. Uh, you can find me. I'm very active on Twitter at Winston E. Black. Uh, I call myself uh, Dr. Black's Medieval Remedies, uh, where I like to share my own research and pretty much anything I can find on uh, medieval medicine. And I do have to point out that in an interesting coincidence today, um, you took the time to talk to us, which has been has been a great chat and we learned so much, but also you're sick over there uh, as we're talking about medicine and illnesses. So thank you again for giving us the last, you know, better part of a half hour or so, because uh, you definitely didn't have to 
but I don't think anybody could even tell. But thank you so much for pushing through your sickness and talking to us today. Uh, I hope you feel better soon. And again, I want to say thank you, of course, to our listeners for writing in all the questions. Um, I hope that you guys reach out to Winston because he's obviously a, just a wealth of knowledge on this subject. Um, and of course, if you love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and you want to continue showing your support, please definitely consider becoming a patron. You'll not only receive the great content we offer you now, but extra insider research, information, prizes, and other exciting opportunities, of course, only offered by subscribing. So until next time, thank you again, Winston Black. Thank you to our listeners. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.